Section 17 of Army Letters from an Officer's Wife, 1871-1888. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Army Letters from an Officer's Wife, 1871-1888 by Francis Rowe. Section 17 letters from 1884 part two camp on yellowstone river yellowstone park august 1884 our camp is in a beautiful pine grove just above the upper falls and close to the rapids from our tent we can look out on the foaming river as it rushes from one big rock to another far from the bank on an immense boulder that is almost surrounded by water is perched my tent companion miss hayes she says the view from there is grand, but how she can have the nerve to go over the wet, slippery rocks is a mystery to all of us, for by one little misstep she would be swept over the falls, and to eternity. Our party consists of Captain and Mrs. Spencer, their little niece, Miss Hayes, and myself, oh yes, Lottie, the colored cook, and six or eight soldiers. We have part of the transportation that Major General Schofield used for this same trip two weeks ago, and which we found waiting for us at Mammoth Hot Springs. We also have two saddle horses. By having tents and our own transportation, we can remain as long as we wish at any one place, and can go to many out-of-the-way spots that the regular tourist does not even hear of. But I do not intend to weary you with long descriptions of the park, the wonderful geysers, or the exquisitely tinted water in many of the springs but to tell you of our trip that has been most enjoyable from the very minute we left Livingston. We camped one night by the Fire Hole River, where there is a spring I would like to carry home with me. The water is very hot, boils up a foot or so all the year round, and is so buoyant that in a porcelain tub of ordinary depth we found it difficult to do otherwise than float, and its softening effect upon the skin is delightful. A pipe has been laid from the spring to the little hotel, where it is used for all sorts of household purposes. Just fancy having a stream of water that a furnace somewhere below has brought to boiling heat, running through your house at any and all times. They told us that during the winter, when everything is frozen, all kinds of wild animals come to drink at the overflow of the spring. There are hundreds of hot springs in the park, I presume, but that one at Marshall's is remarkable for the purity of its water. Captain Spencer sent to the hotel for fresh meat, and was amazed when the soldier brought back, instead of meat, a list from which he was asked to select. At that little log hotel of ten or twelve rooms there were seven kinds of meat, black-tailed deer, white-tailed deer, bear, grouse, prairie chicken, squirrels, and domestic fowl the latter still in possession of their heads. Hunting in the park is prohibited, and the proprietor of that fine game market was most careful to explain to the soldier that everything had been brought from the other side of the mountain. That was probably true, but nevertheless, just as we were leaving the woods by Hell's Half Acre, and were coming out on a beautiful meadow surrounded by a thick forest, we saw for one instant a deer standing on the bank of a little stream at our right, and then it disappeared in the forest. Captain Spencer was on horseback, 
and happening to look to the left, saw a man skulking to the woods with a rifle in his hand. The poor deer would undoubtedly have been shot if we had been a minute or two later. For two nights our camp was in the pine forest back of Old Faithful, and that gave us one whole day and afternoon with the geysers. Our colored cook was simply wild over them, and would spend hours looking down in the craters of those that were not playing. Those seemed to fascinate her above all things there, and at times she looked like a wild African when she returned to camp from one of them. Not far from the tents of the enlisted men was a small hot spring that boiled lazily in a shallow basin. It occurred to one of the men that it would make a fine laundry, so he tied a few articles of clothing securely to a stick and swished them up and down in the hot sulfur water and then hung them up to dry. Another soldier, taking notice of the success of that washing, decided to do even better. So he gathered all the underwear he had with him except those he had on, and dropped them down in the basin. He used the stick, but only to push them about with, and, alas, did not fasten them to it. They swirled about for a time, and then, all at once, every article disappeared, leaving the poor man in dumb amazement. He sat on the edge of the spring until dark, watching and waiting for his clothes to return to him, but come back they did not. Some of the men watched with him, but most of them teased him cruelly. Such a loss on a trip like this was great. When we got to Obsidian Mountain, Miss Hayes and I decided that we would like to go up a little distance and get a few specimens to carry home with us. Our camp for the night was supposed to be only one mile further on, and the enlisted men and two wagons were back of us, so we thought we could safely stay there by ourselves. The so-called mountain is really only a foothill to a large mountain, but is most interesting from the fact that it is covered with pieces of obsidian, mostly smoke color, and that long ago Indians came there for arrowheads. A very narrow road has been cut out of the rocks at the base of the mountain and about four feet above a small stream. It has two very sharp turns, and all around, as far as we could see, it would be exceedingly dangerous if not impossible, for large wagons to pass. Miss Hayes and I went on up, gathering and rejecting pieces of obsidian that had probably been gathered and rejected by hundreds of tourists before us, and we were laughing and having a beautiful time, when, for some reason, I looked back and, down on the point where the road almost doubles on itself, I saw an old wagon with two horses, and standing by the wagon were two men, they were looking at us, and very soon one beckoned. I looked all around, thinking that some of their friends must certainly be near us, but no one was in sight. By that time one man was waving his hat to us, and then they actually called, Come on down here, come down, it's all right. Miss Hayes is quite deaf, and I was obliged to go around rocks before I could get near enough to tell her of the wagon below, and the men not hear me. She gave the men and wagon an indifferent glance, and then went on searching for specimens. I was so vexed I could have shaken her. She will scream over a worm or spider, and almost faint at the sight of a snake. But those two men, who were apparently real tramps, she did not mind. The situation was critical, and for just one instant I thought hard. If we were to go over the small mountain, we would probably be lost, 
and might encounter all sorts of wild beasts, and if those men were really vicious they could easily overtake us. Besides, it would never do to let them suspect that we were afraid. So I decided to go down, and slowly down I went, almost dragging Miss Hayes with me. She did not understand my tactics, and I did not stop to explain. I went right to the men, taking care to get between them and the road to camp. I asked them if they were in trouble of any kind, and they said no. I could hardly control my voice, but it seemed important that I should give them to understand at once who we were. So I said, Did you meet our friends in the army ambulance just down the road? The two looked at each other, and then one said, Yes. I continued with, There are two very large and heavily loaded army wagons, and a number of soldiers coming down the other road that should be here right now. They smiled again and said something to each other. But I interrupted with, I do not see how those big wagons and four mules can pass you here, and it seems to me you had better get out of their way, for soldiers can be awfully cross if things are not just to suit them. Well, those two men got in the old wagon without saying one word and started on, and we watched them until they had disappeared from sight around a bend. And then I said to Miss Hayes, Come! And lifting my skirts, I started on the fastest run I ever made in my life, and I kept it up until I actually staggered. Then I sat upon a rock back of some bushes and waited for Miss Hayes, who appeared after a few minutes. We rested for a short time, and then went on and on, and still there was nothing to be seen of the meadow where the camp was supposed to be. Finally, after we had walked miles, it seemed to us, we saw an opening far ahead and the sharp silhouette of a man under the arch of trees, and when we reached the end of the wooded road, we found Captain Spencer waiting for us. He at once started off on a fine inspection day reprimand, but I was tired and cross, and reminded him that it was he who had told us that the camp would be only one mile from us, and if we had not listened to him, we would not have stopped at all. Then we all laughed. Captain and Mrs. Spencer had become worried, and the ambulance was just starting back for us when fortunately we appeared. Miss Hayes cannot understand yet why I went down to that wagon. The child does not fear tramps and desperadoes, simply because she has never encountered them. Whether my move was wise or unwise, I knew that down on the road we could run. Up among the rocks we could not. Besides, I have the satisfaction of knowing that once in my life I outgeneraled a man, two men, and whether they were friends or foes I care not now. I was wearing an officer's white cork helmet at the time, and possibly that helped matters a little. But why did they call to us? Why beckon for us to come down? It was my birthday, too. That evening Mrs. Spencer made some delicious punch, and brought out the last of the huge fruit cakes she made for the trip. We had bemoaned the fact of its having all been eaten, and all the time she had a piece hidden away for my birthday as a great surprise. We have had one very stormy day. It began to rain soon after we broke camp in the morning. Not hard, but a cold, penetrating drizzle. Captain and Mrs. Spencer were riding that day, and continued to ride until luncheon, 
and by that time they were wet to the skin and shaking from the cold. We were nearing the falls, the elevation was becoming greater, and the air more chilling every minute. We had expected to reach the Yellowstone River that day, but it was so wet and disagreeable that Captain Spencer decided to go into camp at a little spring we came to in the early afternoon, and which was about four miles from here. The tents were pitched just above the base of a hill, you would call it a mountain in the east, and in a small grove of trees. The ground was thickly carpeted with dead leaves, and everything looked most attractive from the ambulance. When Miss Hayes and I went to our tent, however, to arrange it, we found that underneath that thick covering of leaves a sheet of water was running down the side of the hill, and with every step our feet sank down almost ankle-deep in the wet leaves and water. Each has a little iron cot, and the two had been set up and the bedding put upon them by the soldiers, and they looked so inviting we decided to rest a while and get warm also. But, much to our disgust, we found that our mattresses were wet, and all of our blankets more or less wet too. It was impossible to dry one thing in the awful dampness, so we folded the blankets with the dry part on top as well as we could, and then crawled in. We hated to get up for dinner, but as we were guests we felt that we must do so. But for that meal we waited in vain. Not one morsel of dinner was prepared that night and Miss Hayes and I envied the enlisted men when we got sniffs of their boiling coffee. Only a soldier could have found dry wood and a place for making coffee that night. When it is at all wet, Faye always has our tents ditched, that is, the sod turned up on the canvas all around the bottom. So, just before dark, I asked Captain Spencer if the men could not do that to our tent, and it was done without delay. It made a great difference in our comfort for at once the incoming of the water was stopped. We all retired early that night, and notwithstanding our hunger, and the wet below and above us, our sleep was sound. In the morning we found several inches of snow on the ground, and the whole country was white. The snow was so moist and clinging that the small branches of trees were bent down with its weight, and the effect of the pure white on the brilliant greens was enchanting. Over all was the glorious sunshine that made the whole grand scene glisten and sparkle like fairyland, and that day was the 26th of August. It was wretchedly cold, and our heaviest wraps seemed thin and light. Lottie gave us a nice hot breakfast, and after that things looked much more cheerful. By noon most of the snow had disappeared and after an early luncheon we came on to these dry, piney woods that claim an elevation of 9,000 feet. The rarefied air affects people so differently. Some breathe laboriously and have great difficulty in walking at all, while to others it is most exhilarating and gives them strength to walk great distances. Fortunately, our whole party is of the latter class. Yesterday morning, early, we all started for a tramp down the canyon, I do not mean that we were in the canyon by the river, for that would have been impossible, but that we went along the path that runs close to the edge of the high cliff. We carried our luncheon with us, so there was no necessity for haste, and every now and then we sat upon the thick carpet of pine needles to rest, and also to study the marvelous coloring of the cliffs across the river. The walls of the canyon are very high and very steep, 
in many places perpendicular, and their strata of brilliant colors are a marvel to everyone. It was a day to be remembered, and no one seemed to mind being a little tired when we returned late in the afternoon. The proprietor of the little log hotel that is only a short distance up the river told Captain Spencer that we had gone down six good miles, giving us a tramp altogether of twelve miles. It seems incredible, for not one of us could walk half that distance in less rarefied air. Just below the big falls, and of course very near our camp, is a nature study that we find most interesting. An unusually tall pine tree has grown up from between the boulders at the edge of the river. The tree is now dead, and its long branches have fallen off, but a few outspreading short ones are still left, and right in the center of these a pair of eagles have built a huge nest, and in that nest right now are two dear eaglets. The tree is some distance from the top of the cliff, but it is also lower, otherwise we would not have such a fine view of the nest and the big babies. They look a little larger than mallard ducks and are well feathered, they fill the nest to overflowing, and seem to realize that if they move about much, one would soon go overboard. The two old birds, immense in size, can be seen soaring above the nest at almost any time, but not once have we seen them come to the nest, although we have watched with much patience for them to do so. The great wisdom shown by those birds in the selection of a home is wonderful, it would be utterly impossible for man or beast to reach it. Another nature study that we have seen in the park, and which to me was most wonderful, was a large beaver village. Of course, most people in the Northwest have seen beaver villages of various sizes, but that one was different, and should be called a city. There were elevated roads laid off in squares that run with great precision from one little house to the other, there are dozens and dozens of houses, perhaps a hundred in the marshy lake, and the amount of intelligence and cunning the little animals have shown in the construction of their houses and elevated roads is worth studying. They are certainly fine engineers. We take the road home from here, but go a much more direct route, which will be by ambulance all the way to Fort Ellis, instead of going by the cars from Mammoth Hot Springs. I am awfully glad of this, as it will make the trip one day longer and take us over a road that is new to us, although it is the direct route from Ellis to the park through Rocky Canyon. End of letter. End of section 17.